Okay, it's uh, difficult to say the words good morning. Our hearts are obviously very, very heavy this morning to awaken to the uh, horrific news of a heinous terrorist attack, the murder of uh, four, four Jews in Harnof, in Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh, three of them Americans, among them a prominent Rosh Hashiva, Rav Moshe Tversky, the uh, grandson of the Rav, the uh, son Batar Tversky, Rabbi Dr. Isdor Tversky, it's a brother of a mayor Tversky, Rosh Hashiva at YU. It's just horrific news and the description we've been seeing already about how the terrorist murderers came into Shul Dafka while they were davening the Amida, the silent, serene Shmona Esrei, Omeid Lefnei Amelach, standing before the Ribono Shilolam. And so gruesomely, I won't describe to you the images that are already emerged, so gruesomely murdered in cold blood, people occupied with spirituality, with the pursuit of connecting with their Creator, davening for peace. Shimon Esra, the Amida concludes, Oseh Shalom, davening for peace, Sim Shalom. And uh, it's just, uh, it's unfathomable, it's unthinkable. Our hearts are all heavy, and certainly our, our learning this morning is dedicated to Nishmas, those who were murdered, Hashem Yikom Damam, and L'Refuah Shlema, those who very much remain in need of our Tfilos. So our Shir is dedicated Rafua Shlema of Shmuel Yeruchim ben Bela, Chaim Echiel ben Malka, Eitan ben Sara, and Avram Shmuel ben Shena. They should have a complete Rafua Shlema. And we ask Hashem to give strength, <clears throat> give strength to the families of the of the victims of this horrific, horrific attack. <clears throat> okay, we have the privilege of studying Parshas Toldos this morning, page 124 in the Arts Scroll Stone Chumash. As we always do, we'll give a quick overview of the Parsha. So we never do, quick, but we'll give an overview of the Parsha. And, uh, and then we'll delve into Psukim. I want to investigate with you this morning. We've studied it in the past, but then again, every year we revisit the same Parsha. So we're going to revisit the opening Psukim of our Parsha. And our Parsha begins, last week we saw the romantic Hollywood-style um, imagery, portrayal, Rivka arrives on the camel, descends to see Yitzchak, who is having a conversation with the Almighty in the field. The sun is setting on this beautiful couple coming together, who will be the continuity of the Jewish story, of the Jewish journey. And that's exactly where we pick up at the beginning of this week's Parsha. But if last week's Parsha ended with great romance and love and hope and promise, this week's Parsha begins with pain, the pain of barrenness the pain of infertility. Because after it tells us that Yitzchak is the son of Avraham, Yitzchak is 40 years old, it reminds us, when he took Rivka, and Yitzchak and Rivka are barren. We'll see how long they were barren, we'll see how they responded to their barrenness, the challenge of infertility, which the Gemara already notes, that not coincidentally or randomly, our great Imahus, our great matriarchs and patriarchs, struggled with this, what can only be labeled an affliction, an acutely painful very, very difficult uh, condition. And why that was, we'll come back to. Rivka's tefillahs are answered, Yitzchak's tefillahs are answered, she conceives, she feels them, everybody knows this story, the kicking inside, uh, she's told that she's going to have twins, and indeed, the twins are born, and they uh, grow up, and they emerge with very different personalities, very different predispositions, very different uh, people. And uh, Yitzchak, of course, uh, Yaakov, of course, rather is Ishtam Yoshev Oalim, he is the studious, intellectual, disciplined, ethical, good boy. 
Esav is the hunter, the pursuer, the pleasure seeker. And uh, Esav, though he portrays himself to his parents as the good boy, he's duplicitous. He presents one, one kind of uh, personality to his parents and really in his personal life is living a very corrupt uh, existence. Yitzchak uh, is sitting shiva for the loss of his father. Yaakov has prepared lentils. We know the imagery of, of the egg. The lentil is the food of the mourner. Esav returns from the field. He's starving. Yaakov says, I'll give you some food. Sell me the birthright. Esav is mevazve. He doesn't care. He disgraces and disregards the birthright and does so. And a famous... Uh, this was an exchange that has consequences until today. A famine, right? We know that our Avos re-experienced in Yitzchak's persona. We studied in the past, last year, two years ago, Yitzchak is the ultimate, the paradigmatic role player. Right? Yitzchak has very few speaking parts in the Torah. Literally, a handful of psukim, we don't hear from Yitzchak. Very few stories about Yitzchak. And what we know about Yitzchak is almost a perfect repetition of Avraham. Whether it's the famine we're about to read, whether it's redigging the wells that his father had dug. And Yitzhak therefore becomes a precedent for us, the notion of the meaning of being a link in a chain. Not everybody has to be a radical revolutionary like Avraham. Not everybody has to be a visionary who makes transformational change. But being a role player, being a good and honest Jewish mother or father who shows up, who does homework, who provides for the family, who makes a Shabbos table. You don't have to be the game changer of the community. If you're an honest role player, you become a link in that change, an indispensable link. Without you, the, the change, the continuum, could not occur to a certain degree. That's Yitzchak. We developed this much longer. You could listen to one of the Peshirim on Y.U. Torah. So Yitzchak experiences a famine, just like his father. He goes to Gerar. He does the same thing. The whole she's my sh- sister shtick. Um... And we have a similar, we have a similar outcome. Uh, we then have the dispute over the wells. Yitzchak's enemies, the Plishtim, fill in the wells. Yitzchak um, redigs them. Kajbarch reassures Yitzchak. Esav marries. He's 40 years old. Yehudas, the daughter of Be'eri Achiti and Basmas, Baselon Achiti, and they were a source. Moras Ruach Yitzchak Ulurifka. Esav marriage. His choices, his life choices are displeasing to his parents. To his parents. Now it's time Yitzchak feels that he's old. Yitzchak is older. I don't know if it's con- he's having cataracts or macular degeneration or what ophthalmological disease he's suffering from. Rashi tells us it was the tears that fell in his eyes during the Akedah that finally his eyes were giving out. Or it was a function of old age on the simple level. But uh, Yitzchak's eyes are giving out. He determines that he's nearing the end of his life and he's got to give a bracha to his children. He, of course, calls in his bachor, Esav, and Rivka schemes. It's an incredible thing about our Torah, right? It's an amazing thing. This is our Helega Torah, which is supposed to portray our role models that we aspire to be like. And what do you read of a marriage where the wife is scheming behind the husband's back? Or where the son, who's supposed to be this honest, meek, pure, is lying to his father, where the older son, where, where even our great Yitzchak and Rivka produce an Esav to begin with. They even produce an Esav and struggle with a child who's imperfect. You can read all of these stories and you can throw your arms up and say, ah, 
these are our role models, what's the point of it? There's nothing to learn from them. Or you conclude the opposite, which is what Chazal encouraged us to do. Well, actually, there's three possibilities. You could read this, throw your arms up and say, ah, they're not worthy of learning from. You could go to the opposite extreme, which some do and say, they're so worthy of learning from and they're so perfect, our avos and imos, that it can't mean what it seems to mean. And therefore we reinterpret the simple meaning of the text and the stories, the narrative, to be able to be consistent with perfect righteous people and their behavior. And in fact, there is a stream, there's a line of Armaforshim who do just that, who do not allow us to be critical at all of the Avos and Imos, and rather reinterpret the text to communicate the perfect actions of perfect people that we just need to understand. And then there's a third approach, which I think is actually the most normative among our commentators. I once gave a three-part series about this and showed many, many Mepharshim, Rishonim, Achronim, contemporary approaches who are willing to be critical. And that, in fact, that's the beauty of Torah. It's the beauty of Judaism. Is that we don't whitewash our, our, uh, our leaders. We don't try to describe them as perfect. We understand their imperfections. We identify and we relate to their struggles. Their story resonates with us and our story. And that's exactly why they're our role models and how we aspire to be like them. And so we see that perhaps marriages were not perfect. Perhaps parenting styles were not perfect. Perhaps children were not perfect. And there's so much to learn from. So, and, and there's a combination you can have of these three approaches as well. So Rivka, being the mother of the Jewish people, she sees the entire future of the Jewish people at risk. If the bracha is given to the wrong person, end of game, end of story. It's a very short Jewish story. And the world will never get the repair, will never see the light, will never live the destiny it's meant to be. So she steps in. She steps in with great courage and what seems to us to be deceptive and in some ways is, is necessary. You know, how we define truth and how we define deception is sometimes relative. We think truth is absolute, but truth is not absolute. Truth can be relative to the entitlement of the person to the truth. The Gemara already talks about Mashanam Apnea Shalom. We sometimes manipulate the truth for the sake of peace. Every husband knows that when they're asked, do I look fat in this dress? Truth at that moment is relative. If they know what's good for them. Can anyone in their right mind argue that God or that even ethics or morality demand that the husband at that moment say, yes, you look very fat? Is that... So, so truth, truth to a certain... Right? Truth to a certain extent, okay, that's a, that's a humorous example. There are obviously much more serious examples where you're trying to preserve somebody's health by denying them information, so you need to lie. You're trying to preserve peace between people, so you're not entirely transparent, or you manipulate, you're flexible with the truth. And says the Gemara, that's okay. Now, it's a slippery slope, and you have to be very careful in how you apply this. Exceedingly careful in how it's applied, but my point is that truth is sometimes relative. Rivka understood that the truth is that Yaakov, Yaakov is the descendant who will carry the day. So she had to use deception as a means towards reaching that end, where the end, the greater truth is that Yaakov is the Bachor, not Esav, in a world of absolute truth. So truth 
and deception are sometimes relative, not absolute. And sometimes in the pursuit of the greater truth, one needs to engage in deception. It's true in a large scale like Rivka. It's true in a smaller scale like, I don't know, when the husband says, I'm leaving the office now, I'll be home in five minutes. Whatever the case is, there are times where for the sake of peace, there is flexibility. So Rivka schemes with Yaakov. This is Yaakov's great test. We've shared this in the past as well. In order to understand not only this Parsha, but to understand our Avos, the greatest test was each of our Avos had a hallmark, a characteristic that defined them. But maybe that was just their natural predisposition. Maybe Yaakov was just honest, not because Yaakov really valued honesty. Maybe Yaakov was pure and wholesome, not because he really struggled and achieved purity and wholesomeness. Maybe he was born pure and wholesome. He had no temptation. Does he deserve credit for being pure and wholesome? Should he be ascribed as righteous in the name of Hashem for being pure and wholesome if it didn't take effort? How would Hashem confirm that in fact his purity and wholesomeness was directed for Hashem? You know how? By asking him to go against his instinct. Because when a person could go against their instinct because Hashem asked for the service of Hashem, that projects on everything else they did that it wasn't only because it was their natural instinct, it was for Hashem. So Avram was predisposed towards chesed, has to show a willingness towards cruelty for Hashem with the Akedah. Yaakov is predisposed towards emes, has to be willing to engage in sheker to show that even his emes is directed towards Hashem. So they have the scheme, and we know Yaakov puts on the fur and the voice and shechs the animals and Rivka's behind the curtain, orchestrating, pulling all the strings. Yaakov appears before Yitzchak, he pulls it off. Esav, Yaakov, call Yaakov, Yadayim, Yaday, Esav. Esav shows up, Esav loses his cool. Yaakov, Rivka says, you have to flee. And then we have Yitzchak engages Yaakov one more time. The end of the parsha. Yitzchak calls Yaakov, he gives him a bracha, and Vayitzavehu, he commands him. Now what would I have expected? If I'm writing this story, what comes next? Hey buddy, what'd you do? What were you thinking? What's the matter with you? You stole your brother's blessing. You deceived me. You violated my trust. None of that. Yitzchak doesn't have a conversation with Yaakov about what just transpired. At least not in the text. He calls Yaakov in, he gives him a bracha, and he says, do not marry a woman from Canaan. Go, be safe. May Hashem bless you. And Yaakov goes. What? There's no conversation? This tremendous event just happened of deception. What ha- what's going on here? I'll leave that for you to think about. Okay, let's go back to the beginning of the Parsha, what we're going to study together. Perak Chafei Pasuk Yitas, chapter 25, verse 19. Chapter 25, verse 19. Very beginning of our Parsha. V'yela told us Yitzchak ben Avraham, Avraham holid es Yitzchak. This is the story, these are the offspring, this is the tolda. This word tolda we know is used by Chazal, to describe a... There are avos and toldos. There are archetypes and there are subcategories. The subcategory have the characteristics of the supercategory, the archetype, but also continue and have differences as well. So arba avos nezikin. 
we have four types of damages, and then within that we have toldos. We have lamates, avos molachos. We have 39 categories of creative labor on Shabbos, and then each of those categories has toldos, has subcategories. If Avram is the av, if Avram is the super category, the archetype of the Jewish people, the paradigm of the Jewish people, then Avram produced toldos. He produced subcategories, namely, namely Yitzchak. Not only Yitzchak, says Rashi, Ve'ela told us Yitzchak, Yaakov ve'esav ha'amur and paparsha. Who are the subcategories? Yaakov and, of Yitzchak rather, uh, of, of subcategories of Yitzchak, are Esav, are Yaakov and Esav. Part of the Pasuk goes on to say, Avram holidus Yitzchak. That Avram was the father, Avram bore Yitzchak. Don't I know that? If these are the children of Yitzchak ben Avram, then Avram gave birth to Yitzchak. What's going on? So Rashi explains famously, um, The Leitzane Ador, who are the Leitzane Ador? I don't mean name them. Who, but what does it mean, the Leitzane Ador? The cynics, the skeptics, the scoffers of the generation. They sat around on the curb outside the store. They sat around the cafe. They sat around the cigar lounge. And they would say, Yitzchak! Yitzchak is the result of an extramarital affair between Avimelech and Sarah. Remember when they descend and Avram pulled the she's my sister? Yitzchak's not Avram's son. Yitzchak is the son of Avimelech. After all, Sarah was barren all those years. Everybody knows Sarah couldn't have a child. Who's going to believe? Who's going to believe that uh, Sarah gave birth after all those years? Yitzchak is the son of Avimelech, not Avraham. Ma'asa Kodesh Baruch What did God do? Tsar Kalseser Panam Yitzchak Doma Avraham. God fashioned Yitzchak in the image of Avraham. He looked just like Avraham. Ve'idu akol Avraham holy des Yitzchak. One look at Yitzchak you knew Avram was his father. I'm really bad at this game. Yechevet's great at this game. Every little baby you see, oh, it looks just like your mother, it looks just like the father, <laughs> looks just like the aunt, looks just like the cousin, looks just like the... I'm terrible, I always guess right. I try to play the game and I'm always, nah, everyone says it looks like the other, whatever. But one look at Yitzchak as a baby, oh, it was indisputable that Avram was the father. Now here's the incredible thing about this Rashi, the Bali Musar point out. Who cares what the Leitzanei Ador said? Who cares? The cynics, the skeptics, the guys who sit in the back of shul, the guys who sneak out, and do with the guys who. Uh, okay, the cynics, the skeptics, the scoffers. So they're busy uh, sharing the lashon hara, the juicy stuff, making things up, distorting the church. Okay, so the late Sanai Ador gathered and said, "The Yitzchak is the product of every. Who cares? Kodesh Baruch Hu does a miracle. Kodesh Baruch Hu goes out of his way to respond." Kodesh Baruch Hu makes Yitzchak look just like Avram. Who cares? You know what the Baal Yamasar say? You see the power of cynicism. The power of cynicism. That Hashem has to respond. Cynicism is a cancer. It's toxic. It's poison. That cynicism is so poisonous and can pollute the environment and the climate and people that Kodesh Baruch Hu has to respond. Cynicism left unresponded to has power. So much so 
that a Kodesh Baruch Hu had to respond. It's an unbelievable insight into this Rashi. We all know the Rashi forever. We never bothered asking. Who cares what the Leitzanei Ador say? That's the answer. That's an answer. Says the Orachayim HaKadosh. Eila told us, Tzarech Ladas Echad, B'makam Shiyazkir told us Yitzchak, Hizkir Leitz Yitzchak. Be'ez Lai Tzarech Lodiyah Ki Avram Haledis Yitzchak. Why we're about to say these are the offspring of Yitzchak, do we mention the birth of Yitzchak? We're focusing on whom Yitzchak produced. Not that Yitzchak was produced from Avram, and why the redundancy Avram Haledis Yitzchak. Says the Yorachayim Hakadosh, this is what the pasuk intends to say. Eila told us Yitzchak perisha amurim besova parsha. V'kevin shezacher banav sheYitzchak kvar kadam lanu ki Yitzchak kishnolad loya b'madrega sheolad kibam mistitra dinukva k'mashkrasanu l'mala. V'mkei minayin lo told us v'zegamar omar Avram olad Yitzchak hifil kolach aleda biYitzchak shemshechilav nefesh b'madrega molid v'zayya b'emtos hakeda k'mashkrasanu. Rachaim developed earlier this idea that at first Yitzchak was unworthy of being the continuity in the chain. Through the experience of the Akedah, Yitzchak earned a worthiness. And therefore, when we're mentioning Yitzchak's offspring, it's a reminder of Yitzchak's birth, his own development, his own transformation. And the Rachaim develops this much more lengthy. I wanted to really raise his questions. Again, we always try to come back to a sensitivity to the text, to be bothered by the anomalies, the repetitions, the redundancies, what stands out as the Orachayim just was. Look at the Kleyakar. says the Heliga Kleyakar. The Heliga told us Yitzchak ben Avraham, Afa pisha Amr Shaya ben Avraham, Mikomakam hutzrach lomar Avraham olinus Yitzchak. Lufishnemar bishmal ben Avraham asheroda hargar mitzris. Harishihizkir lashen ben Eitzel Avraham. Why do we feel it necessary, says the Kleyakar, even though we say, Yitzchak is ben Avram. Do we have to say that Avram gave birth to Yitzchak? Because with Yishmael, it also says Yishmael is the son of Avram. So you have to understand that when Avram produced, even though he had a co-producer, because it takes two to create a child, the father and the mother, if you want to know who he descended from, it was the influence of the father. He says there's a difference between the concept of a ben, a son, a child, or I should say that, a ben, a, a son, and a tolda means to create. A son can be anyone you influenced. Right? We even use that expression. Come here, son. What are you thinking, son? person uses the expression son for someone who's not their biological child. Someone you've mentored. The Gemara already says, you taught someone else Torah, it's as if you begat them, it's as if they are your child. So the concept of bonim, of being a ben, a child, can apply beyond the genetic parent. the ben, Avram is called Av Hamon Goyim, the father of nations, even though he's not necessarily the biological father of them all. This is what he says. Listen to this incredible insight from the Kliyakar. Fundamental difference, he says, between being the product of the influence of a teacher 
and being the product of a biological father. The product of the influence of a teacher is not because the teacher injects that into you, it's because you, the subject, have chosen to embrace and to transform based on the teachings of the teacher. But when it comes to a biological father or mother, the biological parent instills genetic predispositions, natural tendencies and instincts into the child. And now if you leave all and well enough alone, what is pre-programmed, what is predisposed, the genetic natural instincts in the child that come result from the parent are going to kick in. Right? So, if you have the predispositions of your parent, you can overcome them and change them, but it takes tremendous work and effort and practice. To abandon the teachings of your, of your teacher, that's easy. That comes quickly. To abandon or overcome your nature, that's a lifelong work. When Moshe turns to Hashem and says incredulously, What well, did I give birth to these people? Are they my children? What did he mean, says the Kliyakar? He meant, I'm their teacher. I'm their teacher. And they can take or leave my teachings. But their nature their natural predispositions? Did that come from me? Not from me. That's Moshe's argument to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Listen, I'm the teacher. I did the best I could. But it's the person who put their nature in them, gave them the incredible challenge of overcoming their nature. That's their real influence. That's their, that's the default. So now continues the Kliyakra back to our Pasha. Lefichach, therefore, Yishmael, lo nikra ki ben Avram, ki lo kibel tivo zulas mashalimdo Avram imasa vatovim, vizahaya etzlo b'mikra v'nishtane. Yishmael! Yishmael is just called the ben Avram, but not the tolda of Avram. Yishmael is called the son, as if Avram taught him like a stranger. But in terms of having inherited Avram's nature... Ishmael did not get Avram's nature. Teachings? Yes. He grew up in Avram's home before he was expelled. So the teachings of Avram? Yes. He's a Ben. Like every teacher, their students can be called Bonim. But having Avram's nature? No. In the end, Yishmael, and boy do we know it this morning, in the end, Yishmael abandoned Avram's teachings. In the end, the descendants of Yishmael do not have the nature of Avram, the predisposition towards kindness and ethics and morality and compassion, to run over a three-year-old baby, to cut off a man's arm with tefillin, who's in the middle of the Amida. That is not a descendant of Avram Avinu. That is not a genetic descendant. That is not a child. That does not have the nature of Avram Avinu, the capacity to display such cruelty, is unrelated to Avram Avinu, does not have the nature of Avram. Is a Ben, says the Kliyakar. Yeah, was in Avram's classroom. But you know what? Many people who were in many of people's classroom abandoned the teachings of that teacher. Yishmael and his descendants abandoned the teachings of Avram. Only Yitzchak 
is not only a student of Avraham, but Yitzchak has the genetic predispositions, the nature of Avraham. But when the Torah has to tell us about Yishmael, not as a Ben, as a student, but rather as a Tolda, as a genetic offspring, whom does the Torah identify Yishmael with? Hagar. And who is, how is Hagar characterized? Hagar ha? Mitzris. Ha Mitzrim shtufei zima. Okay, now you gam hu mitzachek begiloi arayos. Ulanishtana. Kikibal tiva be'etzem. Yishmael gained his nature from Hagar. Hagar, whose nature was formed by Mitzrim. Tala ha mikra ba'avram va'etzem ba'hagar. Yitzchak. Yitzchak kibal teva avram. V'lamad gami ma'asa va'kein tala ko ba'avram. Okay, the Kliyaka goes on, but I want to see more. I thought this was timely to look at today. This opening pasuk, Ela told us Yitzchak ben Avram, Avram holy this Yitzchak. Yitzchak is not just the child of Avram in the sense of a student that he serves with Yishmael, but he is the lone spiritual genetic descendant who has Avram's nature and predisposition as well. Okay, we continue. Yitzchak is 40 years old when he takes Rivka, the daughter of Besuel from Padan Aram, the sister of Lavan the Arami, when he takes her for himself as a wife. What's the question? The obvious question. Come on, sensitivity to the text. You're reading this. What's your question? Let me read it to you the way Rashi asks it. Am I such, do I have such a bad memory that I don't remember from last week that Rivka is the daughter of Besuel, the sister of Lavan? I have to go through her whole pedigree again? That she's from Padan Aram? So why did we do it? Why does the Torah mention it? These are the questions we should ask. Rashi asked him. Mepharshim asked him. So why? Why mentioned again, says Rashi? Lahagit shvacha. Shaya bas rasha v'achas rasha. Umakoma anche resha. V'lolamda mimasehem. She was the daughter of a wicked person. She was the sister of a wicked person. She grew up in a wicked city. And she came out holy and righteous. Wow. Is there a greater praise... People are the product of their family. People are the product of their environment. Rivka transcended her environment. Rivka transcended these influences. And therefore the Torah wishes to heap praise upon Rivka. And the praise is not just that she was righteous, but that she overcame the wickedness that surrounded her to nevertheless emerge righteous. Say that again? Yes. Well, not if you want to look at the Gemara and Baba Basra says if you want to, you're dating a girl and you want to know about her, look at her brother. She has an older brother. You look at her brother. Her brother will tell you about her. What does that mean? What do you think that means? I've understood that to mean her brother's lifestyle will reflect what the values of the same home she grew up in. So, 
if you want to know, does he go to Minyan? Does he set aside time for learning? Does the brother give staka? If you see the brother, right, that's not necessarily a rule. There are Rivkas in this world who overcome the influence of their home. But as a general rule, if you want to know what were the priorities in the home, look at the brother. Is the brother, did the brother go to Minyan? Does he set aside time for learning? Is he kind? Is he honest in his business dealings? Is he charitable? Is he community minded? One second. Meaning, if you want to know about the girl and the kind of home she's going to produce, you can't necessarily relate to the girl because you don't. You have different expectations, but the brother you can relate to, so you'll understand what the girl will expect of her son through her brother, and that's the so perhaps the connection. It wasn't a large pool then. There the, 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 the uh, there weren't you know. J date saw you at Sinai. Why you connects? There weren't resumes flowing uh, in those days. There was a small pool. Alex. Whoa, 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 louder. Yeah, and we'll see. I mean, it's also in this context. You'll, you'll see in a moment why, because we're talking about her barrenness and their tefillah. So her pedigree, having descended from wicked people, is about to come into play. So it's not. It's not randomly placed here, this reminder. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Someone here mentioned last week that while they are wicked, Basuel and Lavan, one thing they did right when they sent her off was, they gave her a proper bracha. So did they channel their inner nevuah for a brief moment in time? Or did they, were they wicked on the outside, but on the inside they really knew what was right and what should be and they wanted to see it come to fruition? There was a glimmer of, maybe I was actually thinking when I was looking at the Parsha this morning, maybe actually Rivka was confident to send Yaakov to her brother because what's her last memory of him is getting that bracha on her way out of the house. We all have a tendency to have a selective memory. Her selective memory is not necessarily about his wickedness, but about the proper bracha he gave on her way out. And maybe that's why she felt comfortable or confident. I don't know. Says the Sfarno, Achos lavana arami, umimena nolad esav hadoma laache haem. Achos lavana arami, umimena nolad esav. Esav was born from her, who was like the uncle. So yes, whoever Alex just pointed to, who just pointed, Alex just pointed out. So the Sforno was saying explicitly, the reason we need to now mention Lavan is because if you're going to wonder where did Esav come from, know that in the genetic pool there are the character traits and it's challenging. Well, we'll see if we have time. Maybe Rivka should have identified that and raised Esav differently. It's not my criticism, chas v'shalom, who am I to make that criticism? But others did that maybe Rivka should have identified the potential within her own offspring to have the influence of her brother and therefore have been more vigilant in, in how she approached educating and raising them. But the Svarno, so Rashi said, what are we mentioning there per pedigree? Because it, it heaps praise upon her. Svarno gives a different answer that it tells us, if you're going to wonder in a moment, where does Anasav come from? Now you know. The Rashbam says, Ben Arba'im Shana, Uksiv Ben Shishim Shana, Beledes Osam. How old is Yitzchak when Yaakov and Esav are born? 60. So, it's not too difficult to do the math. How many years were Yitzchak and Rivka married without children? Mishnei Apsukam Malolo Lamadnu, Shaisa Akara Esrim Shana. 
Rivka was barren for 20 years. 20 years. 20 years. Can't imagine the pain. 20 years of waiting, of longing, of davening, of hoping. Why would Hashem make them suffer? I mean, think about it. We just said how righteous Rivka was despite her upbringing and surroundings. That's how Hashem rewards the righteous? Painful. Difficult. So we're not the first to ask this. It should be reassuring to us that Chazal were bothered by the same question. If Hashem loves His most righteous, why does He cause them to suffer? And Chazal answer, whether you're satisfied by it or not, the Kosh Baruch is Mesavel Etzfilas and Shot Tzadikim. That God desires and wants and longs for the prayers of the righteous. And so He sets up a condition that will invoke their prayers. God draws close, He feels intimate when the righteous reach out to Him. And all of us, when all is well and good, do we reach out to Hashem? Eh, we have what we need, we forget. It's when we are in a foxhole that there are no atheists. It's when we're in trouble. It's when there's something missing. It's when we're desperate. That's when we remember Hashem. So Hashem wants the conversation. You know, the child, let me put it to you this way. The child that you're not so fond of and that every conversation is a fight and they're complaining and their entitlement and their lack of gratitude. So that child, you put plenty of money on their debit card and go live your life and if you don't call me that often, I can live. But the child that you love, the child that you long for, and the child that you feel connected to, and the child that you're proud of, every now and then you hold back a little of the money on the debit card when they're at college because you want them to call and say hi. <laughs> so Kodesh Baruch who's holding back. Kodesh Baruch who's holding back, specifically those he loves, because he wants them to call and say hi. He wants that conversation. This is how the Chidush Rim explains the punishment of the Nachash. The snake, after he entices Chava in Gan Eden, what's the snake's punishment? He slithers on his belly and he eats from the dust of the earth. They ask the Chidusha Arim, that's a punishment. Man has to go work the field. Man has to go plow and plant and harvest and winnow and thresh and knead. And, and the Nachash has all the food in the world because for the Nachash, there's never a shortage of dust. What in the world kind of punishment is that? So says the Chidusha Arim, you know why it's a punishment? Kirsh Baruch basically said, here's a credit card with no limits. I don't want to hear from you. Go. To feel when we lack, it generates a relationship. Again, when I say it's unsatisfying, it's because it's painful. It's hardly, it's hardly comforting to the person who's in a difficult position, be it illness, be it lack of money, be it infertility. Oh, Hashem must really love me. He wants me to talk to Him all the time. I'm not suggesting that it's comforting or that it makes it easy, but this is our tradition. This is our tradition. They suffered for 20 years with infertility. Yitzchak entreats God. Yitzchak reaches out. He, he begs God. Relentlessly davens to Hashem. What do these words mean? What is Lenochach Ishto? Come on, people, we're thinking today opposite. He davens to Hashem opposite his wife. Why is that here? Ki for she is barren. 
Hashem responds, Vata Rivka Ishto, and Rivka conceives. Why Lenochach Ishto? What, what does that even mean here? Lenochach, opposite his wife. Okay. Good, so Faye says opposite means they're complementing one another. He's not repeating or mirroring what she's saying. They're offering their each individual lone prayer. The husband's coming as a husband. She's coming as a wife. And Lenochach, on behalf of his wife, but it's his own tefillah. Good. What else? Lenochach. You have to see, it's unusual. So Rashi says, what does it mean, Lenochach? They're each standing in their own corner and they're each davening on their own. It's kind of like what Faye was just saying. They're not outsourcing to the other, but they're each standing in another corner. So Lenochach means opposite. She's in that corner. He's in this corner. They're each davening on their own. Why is that important? Yeah, like they're complimenting. Why is it important? Why does Rashi tell us they're each in a separate corner davening separately? Yes. Absolutely, exactly. Because what happens often with a husband and wife? They have a division of roles and responsibilities. You pay the bills, I invite the guests. You do this, I do that. You, it's a division of responsibility, and husbands and wives piggyback one another. right? You took care of, you, you called the Mushta happy, but you sent the birthday card? That's your job, I don't have to do it. You did the thing, you remembered the thing, I don't have to do it. What happens, Rabbi Salavechik actually explains, explained, that's why we have a machitza in davening. He says, because what would happen if a husband and wife stood next to each other in shul? The husband says, my righteous wife, she's pouring over these davening. I'm checking the score on my phone. <laughs> my righteous husband, my righteous husband, look how sincere he is saying every word. I'm uh, schmoozing with the person sitting next to me. So, said Rabbi Soloveitchik, if we would allow husbands and wives, families to sit together, they would not pursue their own relationship. They would outsource. They would defer. They would piggyback. They would divide roles. Ah, she's davening really well. I'm reading a book. Ah, he's the one who really davens well. I'm schmoozing. I'm daydreaming. I'm fantasizing about my vacation. So by separating what the message of, of Judaism is, is that everyone has a responsibility and an obligation to forge their own relationship with Hashem. Don't rely on others. Don't outsource to others. You don't know who Hashem is going to answer. And you're doing a disservice to yourself. Because if davening is an important exercise for all of us to engage in, which we could talk about more another time why, then we do a disservice to ourselves if we forfeit that exercise. If we don't pursue it. If we don't pursue it. Lenochach ishto. Sforno has a different explanation. Says the Svarno, you know what Lenochach Ishto means? Yitzchak knows that he's the descendant of Avram through whom the continuity will occur. But will it occur through Rivka? What did he see about his father? Sarah was barren for many years, and what had to happen? Avram took Hagar. So while Yitzchak is in his corner davening, what is he saying to Hashem, says the Svarno? Lenochach Hashem, not only do I want a child, I want it through her. 
not a handmaiden, not a shifcha, not a not someone else. I want it through her. That's what Lenochachishto means. So Rashi had an explanation of Lenochachishto, and we saw the Svarno's explanation of Lenochachishto. Okay, let's continue. So Rivka conceives. Yeah, let's con- I'll just tell you this Vayetar is a one of the etors, one of the forms of davening, right? We learn on Wednesday mornings after the 745 minion, or you can listen to it online on Wayutora, Sha'aram Bitfila, Rif Pinkis. I mentioned it last week, where Rif Pinkis talked about the 13 synonyms for prayer, and he develops in chapter each of these different tefillas. Right? Last week we talked about Vayetar Yitzchak Lasuach Basada, Sicha is a type of prayer. So Vayetar is another verb for prayer. Why do I have so many verbs for prayer? Vayetar Yitzchak. What is Vayetar? How is that different than Sicha and Vayetpalel, Pilul, and Zaka, and Saka, and Rina, and how is that different? So the Gemara Sukkah says Vayetar is like an eater. You know what an eater is? A pitchfork. Just like the pitchfork says the Gemara Sukkah. Just like the pitchfork turns over the hay, so too our tefillos turn over Hashem's mind. We, ha- we are effective in making Hashem change His mind. Which begs the question, which I'm not going to answer. But which begs the question, why in the world would I be interested, why should I be interested in getting God to change His mind? God is omnipotent. God is infinite. God is perfect. I am finite. I am imperfect. I am limited. Whose opinion do you think I should go for? A debate between me and God and what's best for me. Who, who, who should I go for if I know what's right? Why would I want to change God's mind? I should change my mind to align with God. Why do I daven? Whatever God ordained is in our best interest, and why am I interested in changing God's mind? It's a good question for another time. So back to the Pesukim. Pesuk Chav the children are Vayisrotetsu, like rats. They're running, they're agitating inside of Rivka. She says, if so, why me? Why me? What does why me mean? Why did I daven so hard for this? For this nausea? For this agitation? For this pain? And where does she go? To seek out wisdom from Hashem, to understand what in the world is going on, what in the world is going on. Says Rashi, where does one go? You want to go find out? You want to make sense of what's happening in your life? Where do you go? The base medrash shall shame. Shame ve'ever had their own base medrash. By the way, this is evidence. Remember, I spoke a few weeks ago in Shabbos morning that we all think Avram is the father of monotheism, but he's not. There were many, many monotheists before Avram. Avram's greatness, based on the Rambam and Hilchus of was not that he discovered there's one God, but that he didn't keep it to himself. He stood on the soapbox and he shared it and taught it and spread it and the impact he had through it. So this is evidence. Shem the Aver descend from Noach. They come before Avram. They had their own base medrash. There were monotheists before Avram. So where does Rivka think to go? Intuitively, instinctively. She's conflicted, she's troubled. Where does she go, Shul? The base Medrash. How does Rashi know that? How did Rashi know she went to the base Medrash? So explains the Sif Sechachamim. 
it should just say she inquired of Hashem. Why does it say Vatelech? My Vatelech. Does God not everywhere? In her kitchen, her dining room, her living room, her bedroom, on her way out of the OBGYN's office. She could have been Doreshus Hashem. What in the world's going on? This agitation, this aggravation, this nausea, I don't feel right. Hashem, what's going on? Why does the text say Vatelech? She went. Should have just said, Vatidro, she inquired of Hashem. What do you see from Vatelech? She must have gone to Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever. Why did she go to the Shiv Yeshiv of Shem Ve'ever, says the Sifsechacham? Who could she have gone to? Who did she have access to? Her shver. Who's her shver? Avram. She could go to Avram. who has got a direct connection, a direct line with the Ribbono Shalom. Why didn't she go to Avram? Why shame Ve'ever? Says the Sifsei Chachamim, so as not to disturb and upset Avram. Avram was going to die before Esav emerged wicked. So why bother Avram by telling him? And Avram would have to understand about the two nations. One is good, one is bad, and so on. So it, it saved Avraham. Okay, let's keep going. <clears throat> Torah tells us, what is God's response? There are two nations inside you. And two peoples are going to emerge from, from inside you. And the elder will serve the younger. The older one is going to serve the younger one. And that's why she understood, says the Rashbam. Look at the Rashbam. Right away she knew that the older would serve the younger. It means God loves the younger. If God loves the younger, then she loves the younger. And Rivka therefore favored the younger, which might have been a, which might have been a mistake. Kliyakar is bothered by a question. We're going to run out of time, so I'll tell it to you outside. The Kliyakar is bothered by a question. Kliyakar is bothered by a question. How does Rivka react to this? She continues with her pregnancy. She has twins. And then they come out. One is hairy and red and so on. I was going to talk more about that, but we don't have time to get into that. But but um, is Rivka satisfied by what she hears when she goes to Yeshiva Shem Ve'ever? Sounds like it. Her day is complete of pregnancy and she gives birth and we don't hear her complaining or disregarding what she hears. Ask the Kliyakar, why is she satisfied? Why is she appeased? Here she feels all this agitation, this kicking. She goes by a yeshiva, she feels kicking. She goes by a Besavarazara, she feels kicking. She goes to the Malach and says, don't worry, there's two nations inside you. She says, oh, that's what's going on? Okay. Really? Okay? Why is she satisfied with the answer she gets? So the Kliyakar has an incredible insight. Says the Kliyakar, the worst fear of a parent is to have a child with multiple personalities. A child who's inconsistent. A child who fluctuates and blows with the wind. So to have a child who could both want to get out when passing a base Medrash and want to get out when passing a base of would be a child who, who has no consistency. 
When she understands that it's two separate children, of course she's not happy to hear that one is an Esav. But you could sooner turn around a child who's passionate at the base of Odazara than you can turn around a child who doesn't have passion, who blows with the wind. And says the Kliyakar, that's why Rivka is satisfied. To know that her child doesn't have multiple personalities. Yes, Rabbi Fox. Exactly. That's exactly it. She was fearful she was having a schizophrenic child who would have no identity. She was relieved to know she was having two children who each would have their own identity and now you can shape the identity. To have someone who has no identity is much more fearful than to have someone who has an identity that you need to shape. The Gemara Psachim Samaches says that on the day that Rav Yosef would celebrate the giving of the Torah, he would make a siyam and he would say, if not for Torah, kama Yosef ika bashuka. How many Josephs, how many Yosefs there would be in the marketplace. The simple understanding of this text of the Gemara Psachim is, if not for Torah, kama Yosef ika bashuka. The simple understanding is, if not for the impact and influence of Torah on his life, Rav Yosef was saying, I'd be like any other Yosef, any other Joe in the street. Torah is what gave me prominence. Torah is what gave me my life. Torah is what gave me my identity. But the Baal Musar understand that no, Rav Yosef was saying something different. Kama Yosef Ika Bashuka. If not for Torah, Kama Yosef, I would be many Joes. I'd be this Joe at work and this Joe at home. I'd be this Joe in shul and this Joe here. This Joe there and this Joe with that friends and this Joe I'd be with that friends. Torah is what consolidates. Torah unites. Torah gives us one identity, one personality, one value system, and that's the power of Torah. So Rivka was fearful she would have one schizophrenic child who couldn't make up his mind. By knowing there would be two children, each with an identity, she could shape them. I want to just close by reading to you the words of the Rav, Rabbi Salavechik. We invoke his Torah on the day that his grandson was brutally murdered. Said the Rav, by People mistakenly think that the anti-Semitism in general began due to economic and political motivations, while the hatred of the Arabs towards the Jews started with the Zionist movement. The antipathy of the anti-Semite is not due to external factors, but is a prenatal tendency. The categorical maxim of Chazal, Halacha biyadua she'esav sones Yaakov, declares that the hatred of Esav for Yaakov is a permanent feature of our history. There's a fundamental conflict between the holy and the profane. The Jew is eternally different from the non-Jew, and Knesset Yisrael is different from any other nation. Said the Rav, this struggle inside Rivka is a prenatal battle that we continue to see today. The Rav was not writing this prophetically, thinking it would hit his own family the way it so tragically has. But this conflict is not due to socioeconomic conditions. Those are excuses. It's not because we're building, it's not because we're occupying, it's not because we're in Tel Aviv or Alon Shavud or Hebron. This is a prenatal hatred. This is a battle of good versus evil. And we need to understand that in being able to defeat our enemy. May we have a better week than we had a morning this morning.